Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome back to the Wealth Planning Podcast Series here on the UBS Conversations Podcast Channel. Today's episode will focus in on estate planning for young families. Joining me here, glad to have back with us Eric Sini as well as David Bietti. Both Eric and David are wealth planning strategists here at UBS. In today's episode, Eric and David will cover timely strategies for young families when developing their estate plan. Eric, I know you'll be moderating today's conversation with David, so I'll pass it over to you. Welcome back. Perfect, Dan. Thank you so much. Well, welcome all, and thank you again for joining us for another edition of the Wealth Planning Podcast. Uh, Today, as Dan mentioned... Uh, we're going to talk about an area that is often overlooked, which is estate planning for young families. Um, and I'm going to read this to make sure I get it right. Uh, according to a survey conducted by Care.com in 2021, only 33% of American adults will have a will. And that percentage drops dramatically for younger age groups. For example, while 44% of those 55 and over have a will, only 27% of people ages 18 to 34 have a will. So... What we end up with is we have a lot of clients that we are working with that have very developed businesses, but almost no financial or estate planning in place at all. And suffice it to say, the old adage really does hold true here, that if you fail to plan, you are truly planning to fail. And so joining me today to help us help our listeners avoid that failure is David Bieni. Uh My good friend is an executive director and wealth planning strategist here at UBS, uh, he works with the Wealth Planning and Trust Consulting Team. So I want to welcome you in, David. Thank you so much, my friend, for joining us today. Great to speak with you, and thanks for having me, Eric. Absolutely. Absolutely. David, there are almost as many follies of youth as there are youth that carry them out. You know, these follies often take the form of excuses for failure to do their estate planning, you know, something that you and I have run into many a time. So what I thought I'd do today, David, is let's start with something fun. Um, I'm going to give you some examples of things that we often hear, and then uh, maybe you can tell me a little bit about what they really mean, you know, translate for me. All right, Eric. Go ahead. All right. Uh, I am too young to plan now. That's easy. It means I have a long life ahead of me. I'll do it later when I'm older. Hmm. I'll get to it, but right now I'm just too busy. Uh, now the client's getting annoyed. It means get off my back. It's just not a priority for me now. Mm-hmm. How about this one? I'm healthy. Nothing's going to happen to me. Whether it's said or implied, it means I'm invincible. Mm. And unfortunately, uh, even when you add minor children to the mix of any of these, uh, these excuses sort of persist. You're right. You know, but focusing on responsible parenting is more likely to result in action than just focusing on estate planning itself. Mm -hmm. And this last one I mentioned in my opening, failing to plan is planning to fail. We've heard that so many times. Oh, yeah, you're correct, Eric. Uh, The adage is true. Uh, The risk can be tragic. You know, unintended results can be entirely avoidable. So to start with, you know, the foundation of a solid estate plan really is a solid financial plan. For young families, the two are intertwined because they both address the same core issue, uncertainty for the future. Combined, they represent a solid wealth management plan. Let's sort of jump into this a little bit. Um, let's give a little context for everyone around this idea of the downside of not planning. So help me with this one. If, if you don't have an estate plan but you have young children, 
who decides who will take care of them if you and your spouse or your partner pass? And then what about your assets? Same question. It's a great question. And as it turns out, it's the same horrible answer for both of them. It's the state. The state will have a process in place to make sure that someone is selected to raise your kids. Likewise, the state in which you live will dictate where your assets go. And this process is generally called under the laws of intestacy. You may not like the answer to these questions, so the easiest way to avoid that is to simply create a plan. Now, just be clear, not all assets, though, flow through the probate process. Assets that have beneficiary designations, such as 401ks, IRAs, annuities, life insurance, or maybe even some places uh, real estate, can often pass by designation and not through the probate process. But the problem still remains for children, and the simple fix is to take the time, you know, to really ensure that your things go according to your plan, not the state's. Yep. I can't tell you how many times I've talked to clients and said, you know, here's what's going to happen. You're not going to have a will in place, and the state's going to decide who takes care of your kids. And the looks on their faces says it all, right? They are not right. interested in that as a result. So we don't want to see that happen. Um, okay. So how does someone get started? Well, the best place to start, really, Eric, is knowing what you have. That's the foundation. So before you can even think about the estate plan itself, you need an accurate understanding of your income, your expenses, your assets, and liabilities. I mean, it's essential. The expression is in the form of a simple budget with a balance sheet. That's it, budget and balance sheet. Now, the comprehensive financial plan takes that further by presenting the budget and balance sheet in the financial context with the personal stuff, your goals, your risk tolerance, your savings plan, your investment strategy. So an effective estate plan really brings together a financial plan in a life context. So when it's executed properly, it all will work together in harmony. Yep. Now that makes sense. So then are we focusing on the numbers? Are we really, are we really thinking about this from a turner, from the standpoint of like responsibilities? Well, the key focus is determining responsibilities. You have to start there. So, you know, who do you need to protect may be simple at first. You think you need your spouse and your children. But these days, family is a much broader term than just encompassing spouses and kids. It could include others, you know, to mix like parents or siblings, in-laws, business partners, employees, maybe charities. So if you look at the legal nature of the modern family, it could really reveal different legal relationships that require different planning strategies. Maybe surprise you, and the result may be very different than you expect. Yeah, yep. All right, so then what kind of questions should we be thinking about as we start to prepare the plan? You know, okay. So, talking about. Yeah, so let's so think about this. Think about it in terms of a life partner, okay? Is your life partner your spouse? Married to? Is it a domestic partner, not married to? Or is it a happy attachment? Roommate with fun. Okay? What about the kids? Are the kids yours? Are they natural born children? Are they adopted children? Uh, are they from a pre your present marriage or a previous marriage or maybe no marriage at all? But what about your spouse's kids? You know, from a previous marriage or no marriage? And maybe you haven't even adopted them. So all of this comes together, starting out, who are these people and what is the legal relationship they have? Yep. Well, so love and affection are not necessarily uh, blind to the legal status, right? But the estate planning laws certainly are not. And so uh, exactly. we have to pay attention to that. Right. So spouses may see each other as equal partners then. Um, 
But those elements that you mentioned, you know, in talking about equality, that's going to be different, right, from family to family and from one spouse or partner to another. How do you uncover those differences when you're working with clients? Well, there's really three areas that you need to look at in the discovery process. Start off with assets and liabilities, between the two. Think in terms of employment. And also really think of personal contributions to the home. That often gets neglected. Okay. But do we think about only what they have when they're sitting in front of us and what they're making going forward, or do we also have to consider what they brought into the relationship? Actually, it's really both. You know, so you start off with you know, any kind of pre-marriage assets and liabilities. You, know, you want to know about that in addition to the current picture. So like what assets and liabilities did you bring into the marriage? Um, did one spouse previously inherit property? Uh, did the other spouse have a whole lot of student loans? You know, that kind of thing. Okay. Okay, then, and then you mentioned employment. What about that? What, what are you looking for there? Sure. So here's some questions to think about. You know, number one, are both spouses employed outside of the home? Then, are their incomes similar or are they significantly different? And what about if one spouse is employed inside the home, let's say as a homemaker or caretaker of children or other people? What about if one spouse earns income from employment? Uh, what about the other spouse? Maybe the other spouse does volunteer work. All of that has value. So then we really have to think about this globally because contributions to the homestead isn't just sort of a static definition. Right? Exactly. Not every spouse works outside of the homestead. You know, spouses all contribute something to running the home. Yeah. Well, and... I know, having worked with many clients as you have, you, you, they don't always agree. Would you agree with me there? The, the spouses sometimes have a different opinion there. Yeah, sometimes they do. You know, but seriously, though, think about this. What unpaid work does each spouse do to maintain the family and the home? Could one spouse do that work if the other spouse is gone? Or would that work have to be hired out? An understanding of these answers will really help in, you know, figure out this you know, degree of support that starting spouse needs. And then as well as the children, right? So it's it's not just the, the spouse with the significant other. It's, it's uh, the children as well. Well, minor children. We've talked about minor children. Now, um, there could be older children who may still be dependent on their parents, especially those with special needs. Uh, no, that's a good point. Um, in fact, we, we have another podcast on planning for children and adults with special needs, so that's, that's a really well-done point, and um, we've certainly covered that in the past. That, that's an important area of planning as well. Um, okay, so I've got my balance sheet. I'm the client here, and I've got my income and expenses. I've sat down with my significant other to hash things out, you know, who, where, when, what's going to be included in the plan. What basic estate documents do I need to make sure that we're covered? Okay. Well, it doesn't matter what your income or the size of your estate is. The following six documents comprise a basic estate plan. And one of those will have an asterisk, okay? So number one, it's your last will and testament. Number two, it's your revocable living trust, and that's the one with the asterisk. We'll come back to that. Then you have a medical power of attorney, a financial power of attorney, HIPAA authorization, that's for health care, and then finally, your advanced directive in living will. Now, when I'm talking about the uh, revocable trust, not everybody needs a revocable trust. It depends on the size of your asset and complexity, et cetera. Um, for a lot of folks, they do. Um, but I, I see that as maybe an optional document, depending on the, the size of the estate and the complexity of the estate. Okay. 
And so then when we're, we're looking to make, you know, and create these documents, what basic estate planning decisions should be made at this time? And, and does it matter who's doing the drafting? Can we just... Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Eric, well, let's start this, okay? Remember, you get what you pay for, okay? Yes. Well, in estate planning, it's as true there as any place else. So, number one, everybody listening here, please avoid the temptation to do it yourself or to do it on the cheap, okay? Um, you will regret those results. Uh, instead, you engage an attorney who specializes in estate planning, and specializes is an important word here, okay? Because estate planning is always changing and evolving, and you know, if you hire an attorney, estate planning should be the prominent focus of their practice. This is not a place for dabblers. It's not a place to hire your real estate guy to do your estate plan. So then, once you've got that figured out, who's the attorney, then you really have to assemble your team. And the team are the people who are going to make your estate plan actually happen. So think about this. Who's going to be the executor, the administrator, or the personal representative of your estate? Those words all mean the same thing. It depends on what your state is. Who's going to be the trustee? Who's going to be the successor trustee? Who's going to hold the financial power of attorney? Who's going to hold the medical directives? Who's going to be the guardian of minor kids? So as I said before, you know, if, if you're thinking of naming family or friends for one or more of these roles, it's real important that you ask them at the very beginning if they're going to take on the responsibility. And you figure out who's going to determine best to fit that role then make sure you inform them that they're being appointed because the last thing anyone wants is a surprise. Nobody likes surprises. Okay. Now, so once you've all that figured out, then you decide on the distribution of your estate. You think in terms of your surviving spouse, your children, other friends or family, charities. Um, a lot of times, these best decisions are made when you discuss options. Talk this over with your estate planning attorney, your financial advisor. Talk about different options, opportunities, obstacles. It will help you focus your uh, estate plan to really bring out the one that's really important to you, okay? This independent perspective will bring you a lot of clarity. You know, you, I think you really hit on something there. One of the things that I always talk to clients about is focusing on just getting down, writing down what it is you want to see happen, right, and who you think fits in that role. Because if, if you are able to do that as a client, I think you're really most of the way there. Because then when you go sit down and talk about attorney, uh, you're going to have a really good sense of what you want to see happen. They'll help you figure out how to fashion it. So, um, One of the things that you just brought up that I want to focus on a little bit more, uh, you've got this team. Uh, the one that sticks out, though, is that, that guardian, right, the guardian of minor children. And we know that that can be one of the most critical people in the mix uh, for your team. Talk to me a little bit about that. Okay. Well, you know, if, if there's one motivating concern here in all of this, okay, it's got to be the care of minor children in the event of both parents just being deceased, okay? They're little kids. They can't raise themselves, okay? Someone's got to figure it out for them. And it's your last will and testament that appoints the guardian of minor children. Now, if you don't appoint a guardian for the minor children, that leaves that decision in the hands of probate court, and you're going to have to think not too hard to imagine what the probate court is going to appoint as the person to raise your kids. I'll bet it's not the person that you would want to choose yourself. Yeah, and we talked about that earlier on. You do not want the state making those decisions. So no. in, do most people just name then a family member? 
for that role? How, how does that well, work, traditionally work? Well, I mean, again, you, know, you ask a question that sounds kind of like light and it means a question, and it's not. You know, it's a very important decision, and it shouldn't be taken lightly. So when you're thinking about who's going to be the best guardian for your minor children, parents need to think long and hard about it. Okay, Number one, not just the guardian, but they have to think about the guardian's family, and they have to think of the parents' extended family as well. Do you want to hire a guardian who doesn't like your folks? Your kids will never see their grandparents if that happens. <laughs> You're right about that. Um, so there's a lot to think about there. So then how do you tell if someone's really the right person to raise your kids? How do you, what do you give in terms of guidance for clients on that idea? Okay. Um, there, are, there are a lot of things to think about, and you really have to kind of weigh them in your own priority. But to start with, does the person who you are thinking about as a guardian have the right personality, the right temperament, and the patience to parent your kids in the way that you want to do it? Think about having your kids being raised by someone who's very short-tempered. Not a very happy childhood, probably. Okay? See, uh, will this person have the same family values that you have that you want to make your children are raised with, like religious values, moral values, ethical values, that kind of thing? Um, Think about this. Will your children fit in with the guardian's family? Remember, that's the context that your kids will be living in, in someone else's family. Will the guardian foster your children's relationships with your family? Bring your kids to see the, your grandparents and aunts and uncles and cousins, that kind of thing. I mean, this is really, really important, especially if the guardian that you, guardian that you choose isn't a member of either family or, sadly, if both sides of families just don't get along. Oh, well, that never happens. We, we never see any family conflicts when it comes to estate planning, that's for sure. Oh, yeah, right. I could tell you stories. How much time do you have, Eric? That's right. That's right. Um, so as you think about the guardian's parenting and social skills, you know, do we also think about their ability to manage the finances? You know, we know that that slightly can be a different role um, potentially, is there a separate guardian of the estate that you would name or for over the assets? How does that work? Yeah, uh, and, and that's a really very important uh, clarification. When we think of guardian, there's really two kinds of guardian. There's the guardian of a person, that's the person who's going to raise your kids. There's also the guardian of the estate. That's the guardian who's going to take care of the finances. So if you think about it, can the guardian be trusted to manage the assets of your children prudently? That's a very important question. Does this guardian have the financial management or investment skills necessary to make proper decisions in managing assets? Here's one more thing. Think about this. If the guardian is to raise your children and manage the assets that you leave behind them, what are the checks and balances to make sure that the children are being raised properly? Where are the checks and balances to make sure that the assets aren't being squandered? Now, I always think you're taking risk off the table, right? Let's just eliminate risk where we can. And one way to really eliminate risk here is to select different people. Have one guardian to raise the kid and a different unrelated person to manage the assets. Now, if you think about it, you know, you have to have an honest appraisal of the guardian's business acumen. You know, you may trust this guardian for raising your kid, but they just may not have the savvy necessarily to run the investments. And maybe in some cases you may need to have a professional investment manager or a corporate trustee to take care of that. So if you think about it, you know, yeah, it could be both. You could have one guardian doing both. I like to see it when they should get the you know, responsibilities. But I'll tell you one thing. It could work. 
until it doesn't. And then yeah, I mean, when capital's gone, it doesn't come back, right? Exactly, exactly. So, so let's think about a couple more things about raising the kids, okay? So first of all, there are different kinds of expenses that you have to take into consideration. Okay, so first you've got like direct expenses, like food and clothing and education. You can kind of figure that one out, okay? Then you've got indirect expenses, so vacations or hobbies or, or think in terms of quality of life expenses, okay? And then we've got capital expenditures and personal time. And how do you even figure that one out? That's very hard to figure out. So if you think about it, let's focus on the capital expenditures, for example. When your kids are going to go to live with a guardian, is the guardian going to have to adapt his or her home to accommodate your children? Are there enough bathrooms? Are there enough bedrooms? Is there enough communal living space? I mean, do they need to get an entirely new home because their family has now become so, so large? Think about it, too. You have to be very careful. You don't want your kids necessarily split up because the guardian that you selected just doesn't have room for them. So if you think about a couple more things, so think about um, this guardian who's raising your kids and taking care of his or her own family. Are they going to have to, like, reduce their employment or, or even quit their job just to raise your kids because they need the time? You know, what about additional resources that could come in and help, you know, pay for the raising of your kids? You know, the day-to-day kind of stuff. Maybe you can kind of hire out a little bit. That's, uh, that's a lot to think about, but it's all really good points. So then what's the bottom line here? What's the garden? Yeah, I mean, think about this. The bottom line is this. Ask yourself this question. Can the guardian balance the interests of his or her own family and my family so that all will have a feeling of belonging in this new combined family? You take a pause, think about that, and if your answer is yes, probably have a good candidate for guardian. Now make sure that you talk to this person and ask them if they will accept it. I mentioned this earlier. Make sure that you let them know that it's okay to say no. The last thing you want is to have someone who you've just asked this question to, will you be the guardian of my kids? They're afraid to say no. They don't want to offend you. They don't want to say no. In their mind, you have a really bad kind of selfish type of thing. But you want them to be free to say no. If they say yes, and they say yes reluctantly, you've got someone who can be looking at your kids who doesn't want to. Or worst case scenario, something happens, they come in as guardian, they say, I'm not doing it. But they say they're not doing it, who's going to appoint the guardian? The court, who's going to do it? The state. We're going to be back to where we were at the very beginning of our conversation today. So I have to tell you, you think about this, it's really important. Make sure you get your agreement at the very beginning. Eric, it's not all about the money. No, it, it most certainly isn't. Um let me go back for a second to something else you said about the adult children. Uh, you know, okay. Children are not necessarily clustered into to minors, right? Um, there may be circumstances where a parent wants to make special provisions, for example, for adult children. Tell me a little bit about that. Got it. So, you know, we were talking about, you know, you have big families, air, you know, different age groups of kids, especially that, you know, blended families, et cetera. So think in terms about there are like three kinds of categories of adult children that come into play here, okay? So the first category I call like troubled adult children, okay? These troubles could be like, you know, alcoholism, substance abuse, 
maybe spending problems, behavior problems, sometimes maybe even being in jail. And the key here is you want to make sure that whatever you're doing in planning for these troubled adult children is designed to enrich their life, not enable their troubles. I have to tell you, I have never met a parent in my 40 years of experience who says, I want to leave my estate plan in such a way that I ruin my kids. No parent says that, okay? Okay, so they just, they just don't. Okay, so the next group really is uh, called the second category. These are folks with special needs, okay? Uh, it could be minors, it could be adults, uh, but they have different challenges. Um, they have disabilities. They have things going on in their life that really inhibit their independence or their ability to take care of themselves. And so special planning for them is very important. You want to make sure that you maintain government benefits and programs that are available to them because faulty planning can remove a lot of good things that could be available to them um, otherwise. You know, so think in terms of special needs planning, it's a, it's a quality of life thing for those kids, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, and then the third category really is, you know, we kind of all kind of joking to call about the, the trust fund brat, right? You know, these are uh, planning issues that really uh, kind of want to avoid a future problem, okay? Your kids may be great today, but if you dump a whole lot of money in their lap, you know, you may take away their uh, desire to be a productive person in society. So you have to be kind of careful with that, you know. Just go down to the supermarket tabloids and you can see lots of stories of trust fund brands out there. For what they get probably, probably more than a few. And those are usually <laughs> more than a few, right. Our clients, they, they know who they are. Um, well, I want to I pivot here for a minute. Um, okay. Talk a little about something different. So one of the things that we know we also talk about and we spend a, spend a fair amount of time on is, is the idea of life insurance. It's a key, key component to a lot of the planning that we do. But how right. did that get worked into the conversation? Well, life, I mean, it's a big topic, right? Um, life insurance, if you don't say, you know, why is it here or why do we need to focus on it? For young families, life insurance is so important because it's designed to ensure that there's liquidity. You may have young families whose kids have to get through school, they have to get through college, et cetera. Where's the money coming from to make that happen? That's where life insurance really comes in to help out with that. Okay. Well, then how do we how do we figure out how much we need when we're doing this planning? Okay. It's no different than the other kind of stuff we've talked about, you know. So let's let's start with what are you trying to protect, okay? So if you're concerned about the spouse, that's bringing home the bacon. Okay. What is the earned income of the deceased spouse? Okay. If they pass away, that income goes, right? So what does a surviving spouse need for support for him or herself and the family for pre-retirement? What is needed after retirement? Uh, what support is needed for dependent children? I mean, and there's a point in time the kids will no longer be dependent, hopefully. Maybe there's other dependents. Maybe there's parents or siblings or other folks that you have to look at. So that's what you want to focus your attention on, on all of those and think of them discreetly and also looking at them in different time periods. Right. Plus, you got who's going to do the laundry, cut the lawn, etc. Right? There's a lot of things that have to be considered here. I think. Bingo. Okay. So think about that. And this is what a lot of people forget. They don't think about this. Okay. Are you going to have to hire help to replace domestic services that a deceased spouse or a stay-at-home parent did? Who's going to cut the lawn? Right. Who's going to do the dishes? Do the laundry? You know, do those kinds of things around the house. If the surviving parent doesn't have the time, energy, or inclination to do it, it has to be hired out. So think about this. How much is it going to cost to provide my kids with the basics? 
start with that food, quality, shelter. Pretty much easy to figure out. Then, what additional expenses will be out there that you want to contribute to children's quality of life? Vacations, summer camps, programs, whatever. Okay? They may be too young to do it now, but when they're in the high school, they may want to do things. So you have to think about the future as well. Uh, think about education costs. You know, primary, secondary school, college, trade school, there are costs involved. Whether they go to public or private doesn't matter. There's always going to be some kind of cost in education. And then finally, you know, um, think about the guardian. You know, is the guardian going to need to have a few extra bucks to, to raise your kids just for themselves? Think about that. Not just your kids. So then is it really for the cost? Um that's why we do the comprehensive financial plan, right? Because we're, we're trying to help the client determine the appropriate amount of insurance you know, that, that, that will help solve some of these issues should something happen to one of the primary caregivers. Um, you know, cause you don't want it to be too much, too little or too expensive. Yeah. And also the right kind of insurance. I can't tell you the number of cases I come across where clients, they understand insurance is important to get the insurance, but they got the wrong kind. Right. Okay. Well, that we've just covered a fair amount. So then we we're done, right? We we did all the planning. Are we good? Hold on, buckaroo. I'm not through with you yet. Okay. We have to all talk about. I didn't think. <laughs> we have to talk about implementing the plan, right? We can plan all we want. We don't implement it, and it's just been a nice day. Okay. Let's focus on implementing the plan. So when you have the estate planning process, you've got your documents signed and the ink is dried, okay? You're still not done. You have to implement the plan, and that's going to include the titling of your assets, make sure that the titling is in coordination with your plan, just make sure you change beneficiary designations on your retirement accounts or existing life insurance policies, et cetera. And you and I have been in this business long enough to have had the experience where an ex-spouse just happened to have been a beneficiary of a retirement account. Um, and then finally, you know, purchasing any additional insurance that, that your plan really requires. Most competent estate planning attorneys will provide their clients with instructions on implementing the estate plan. These are called funding instructions. So if your attorney gives it to you, great. If your attorney doesn't, please ask for it. Okay? Now, if you talk to your UBS advisor, your UBS advisor can help you with a lot of this, okay? Like retiring your accounts that are here or consolidating other assets in accordance with your estate plan and, and certainly uh, help you with getting the necessary insurance that you need. So then, yeah, the, the implementation really is is the key here. Um, because right. I, I think we've heard people say planning without implementation is, is not planning, it's, it's hope. And as someone I know well likes to say, hope is not a strategy. I think I know who that someone is. Uh, you're right. So think about this. So when it's all said and done, your documents are signed, your assets are retitled, your beneficiary designations have been changed, your insurance is in place, your estate plan is complete for now at this moment in time. Perfect. Perfect. So now what? <laughs> you're not done. Okay, you're not through forever today. Okay, we're not. Have to, okay. No, no, no. You have to review your estate plan. Okay, on a periodic basis. Here are a few key things to think about. Okay, if there's nothing that changes in the world, 
review your plan every five years. Okay? But if there have been changes, review it then. So, for example, one type of change could be like, you know, significant changes in your family situation. You get births, adoption, deaths, divorces, remarriages, illnesses, disabilities, all the things that happen within the family. Okay, the personal stuff. Another type of change to focus your attention on is any significant changes in your financial situation. You know, increases or decreases in employment or unemployment, you know, income, expenses, uh, cash flow, inheritances, you know, overall assets and liabilities. The other thing which folks don't think about, okay, is all of these things and attach timing to it. When do you think these events could potentially happen? Um, another thing, people move around. People, you know, you know, don't stay in their homes for more than, what, on average, seven years or something like that. So, you know, if you're going to move and you move into a different jurisdiction, different state or a different country, you're going to have to redo your estate plan that involves the laws of that new state or country. You can't go with your, your old state necessarily with that. And then finally, um, in this kind of crazy world that we have right now with the tax changes all the time, any kind of tax changes out there, either anticipated or in fact actually going to happen, or maybe any other changes in the law, you'll want to review your state plan then as well. Okay? So think about it. If you're not sure, there are a lot of things going on, you're not sure, just talk to your advisor. The UBS advisor is going to help you review all the, help you figure out whether, yeah, there's been enough changes here that really merits a, a formal review of your plan. Well, David, this has been fantastic. I really appreciate the guidance, and I, and I know there's a lot more here, but you've really done a, a fantastic job of giving us a good grounding and an understanding of what we need to start thinking about it when, we're, when we're working towards building that initial set of planning. Um, and I know there's more on insurance. We, we, we sort of kept that short today. Would you be willing to come back for another, another podcast, another round here, so we can go deeper into that conversation on insurance planning for young families? Yeah, absolutely, because there is a lot that we didn't cover today that is important on this whole topic, fighting for young families, so very happy to do that. Well, fantastic. So, David, thank you again. I appreciate your time. Um, well, with that, we thank you all for your time, and that wraps another session of the Wealth Planning Podcast. Um, thanks for joining us today, and for our listeners, if you have any questions uh, regarding today's discussion or you want to speak further about how to think through your estate plan or your financial plan, please reach out to your UBS financial advisor who can help you start that process and bring the resources like David and our team into the discussion. So thank you again, and please join us next month for another installment of the Wealth Planning Podcast. Neither UBS Financial Services, Inc. nor any of its employees provide tax or legal advice. You should consult with your personal tax or legal advisor regarding your personal circumstances. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients, UBS Financial Services, Inc. offers investment advisory services in its capacity as an SEC-registered investment advisor and brokerage services in its capacity as an SEC-registered broker-dealer. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways, and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. It is important that you understand the ways in which we conduct business and that you carefully read the agreement and disclosures that we provide to you about the products or services we offer. For more information, please review Client Relationship Summary provided at UBS.com forward slash Relationship Summary or ask your UBS Financial Advisor for a copy. 